Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Two View, the cutting-edge educational and interactive podcast for nurse practitioners and physician assistants in emergency medicine and urgent care. We're back with another episode chock full of info, and we want to get right into it. Today, we're going to be discussing sickle cell disease, a little bit of COVID and how to give an IM shot correctly, vaccines, charting and documentation, and we'll end the show with a segment on first-time seizures. I'm here with my co-host, as always, Michael Sharma, PA. Great to see you. Thank you, Martha. Man, I'm really excited to talk about this. I mean, I probably saw each one of these issues come up over the course of my past week in the ER to some degree, so this is great. Let's start out by talking about sickle cell disease. This is a very complex and difficult disease to manage, especially by emergency clinicians for many reasons, and it's very important for us to know how to treat it uh, in our practice setting. Yeah. And side note, Mike, we know that each and every sickle cell patient is super unique and has very specific needs. So not only with pain management, but also with the workup in the plan, sometimes observational stays or admissions, sometimes pain crisis management and assurance that we have not missed an underlying complication or diagnosis. So most likely you will get to know these patients in your community and create what I hope is a powerful relationship of trust, safe practice, care, compassion, and sometimes creativity. I'm going to go off script here for a little second. It sounds like you have a patient or two you had in mind when you when you were writing this. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I always have patients that come to mind when we talk about certain diseases or illnesses or processes that will give us a frequent flyer, you know, whether that be drug or alcohol abuse, um, chronic pain syndrome, uh a lot of the chronic abdominal pains are hyperemesis, gastroparesis patients, DKA, you know, my homeless patient population. I could go on and on and on. These people I get to know, and I, I really feel, you know, strongly about creating a sense of a, a powerful relationship with them. I really agree with that, all of that. Um, you know, it felt like such a coincidence the other day. I was flipping through my emails as I was getting ready for this discussion, and I saw an email from, you know, one of these major medical websites that we all get emails from, and it offered this free interactive training session on sickle cell disease. So I went through it just to kind of humor myself and see what they were offering, and I applied some of the things we're going to talk about today. And what I thought was great was, number one, at the end of the session, it displayed, you know, what percentage of people who had previously taken this little training session, had selected, you know, this intervention over that intervention. And number two, what was striking was that there were large amounts of clinicians who were doing things that would be considered below or even against the modern standard of care for sickle cell disease. It really highlighted to me the need for an updated discussion. Let's go through the American Society of Hematology 2020 guidelines for sickle cell disease and management of acute and chronic pain. You know, we could do a whole hour on all aspects of managing this disease, but we are going to focus on the acute pain management aspect and also, you know, throw in a few other important clinical pearls for general management in the emergency department, especially during the COVID-19 era. These guidelines can be found in the journal Blood Advances, which, you know, if you're going to start a new medical journal, give it a name that sounds like a heavy metal band like Blood Advances. That's pretty cool. (laughs) This is in the June 2020 issue. We will, of course, have links to this guideline, the other articles and websites we reference throughout our podcast at our website. That's twoview.fireside.fm. That's the number twoview.fireside.fm, twoview.fireside.fm. 
All right, great. And again, we'll have lots of liner notes for you as we go along. Uh, but first, Mike, let's do some background on the disease. Sickle cell disease is considered a rare disease, but it's probably the most common of the rare diseases. That always sounds a little strange to me, but in, in the U.S., with approximately 100,000 people suffering from it here. In the U.S., it's associated with a decreased lifespan of about 15 to 20 years on average, which may not sound so bad relative to other diseases, but to put it all in perspective in Africa, most people with sickle cell disease die in childhood. Yeah, it's in one dialect on that continent as akokufalubi, meaning he will die tomorrow. So mm. that really paints a picture on how lethal this thing is at, at a young age. It is, of course, an inherited disease, and children can start having chronic and acute pain from what we're going to talk about today, these vaso-occlusive crises, as early as the first year of their life. As much as this guideline was published in a hematology journal, they did a great job of bringing in a whole team of clinicians to develop these guidelines. There were patient representatives, actual patients with sickle cell disease, and emergency medicine physician. Martha, you'll be thrilled to know they brought in a nurse practitioner boop, boop. as well. And I think it's important because, you know, the way that patients' needs with sickle cell disease are best managed are with a multidisciplinary team. There's other medical conditions that, you know, we just, we fix in the ER. That's our lane completely. We don't solve all of sickle cell disease in the ER, but we are a critical part of managing these pain crises and also recognizing the more serious complications when they come up. Right. Well, we're going to skip talking about some of those more complicated issues like acute chest syndrome and infections and osteomyelitis today and focus on the vaso-occlusive crises. Specifically, we want to help optimize our management. There is a spotlight being put on opioids. Clinicians are being tracked on their prescribing habits and measured up against other clinicians, almost like, you know, we do for discharge times or door-to-dock times, to the point where we may be reluctant to give opioids. And, you know, it's creating this sort of new sense of concern. And it's been ongoing, and it's stressful for everybody, especially the patients, you know, because they're in pain. Um well, our familiar faces, like we talked about earlier, you know, they might have a pain plan and they want to stick to that plan. And all of a sudden they're not getting their pain meds. So the chronic pain is a feature of sickle cell disease, but that's different from the acute vaso-occlusive crises or VOCs in sickle cell. So sickle cells plug up circulation and cause ischemic injury. These are acute events and are separate processes from the chronic pain that patients are dealing with. And think of all the other painful, acute ischemic events that we deal with in the ED. There's acute coronary syndrome, acute mesenteric ischemia, acute ischemic limb, testicular torsion, ovarian torsion. If we had some one who we knew suffered from that, uh, from chronic pain, and perhaps they came to our ED and a lot of that chronic pain and then they legit came down with one of these really painful emergent conditions, I hope that we would pull out all the stops to help comfort our patient who is suffering with this acute condition. So physiologically speaking, um, these events are, you know, they can, they can be very painful for a patient, and we shouldn't be afraid to treat them as we would any other acute painful event. You know, I totally agree. This is a separate process in the same patient. You're going to hear us use words like recommends and suggests. 
These are straight from the guidelines where recommend is used as a strong strength recommendation where most patients want this course of action. Most clinicians should follow this recommendation. And more commonly, suggest, which is more of a conditional recommendation. You know, most patients would want this, uh, majority would, and clinicians should recognize that certain patients may or may not be on board. And this is where your shared decision making is going to come into play. There are also some no recommendation topics where panel didn't really take an opinion either way and suggests against things we probably shouldn't be doing. Let's kick off with talking about opioid pharmacological therapies for acute sickle cell disease pain. Now, the first recommendation the panel recommends, so strong strength recommendation, rapid assessment and administration of analgesia within an hour, one hour, 60 minutes of ED arrival and reassessment every 30 to 60 minutes after that of how their pain is coming along. And for those of us who work in busy settings, the first question is, how? How are we going to manage that? Well, I think we kind of get on board with giving sickle cell patients a higher ESI from triage in general. Kind of noting that, hey, we need to get patients their pain relief of this VOC quickly. And also, hey, there could be other stuff going on that if we're just thinking about the VOCs, we're going to miss this other emergent thing going on. Well, it also takes time to get these medicines into a patient. So consider your non-intravenous routes of administration. You know, they talk about subcutaneous or intranasal routes of analgesia. We're going to have a table in our show notes. Uh, but I also would put a plug-in for oral morphine, immediate release tablets. Okay, given it the right dose, these can provide very similar levels of pain relief to intravenous morphine. Another way to get these patients some relief quickly is the next recommendation, which may be a little bit controversial. The panel suggests tailored opioid dosing based on baseline opioid use, prior effective therapy, and patient preference. Now, I've seen in certain EDs where they have this very protocolized, one-size-fits-all, everyone with a VOC gets these pain medicines in the sequence guideline that all their clinicians follow, and that has its benefits, but... That doesn't acknowledge the fact that, you know, like Martha said earlier, each sickle cell disease patient is an individual. Yes, they may all have the same diagnosis code, but how the disease affects them and how they interact with the disease and everything else in their lives is not the same across the boards. So what the guidelines panel is suggesting that each patient has a plan, individualized per patient, meds and doses that work for this patient, preloaded in the EMR, let's say, or some other quick reference book for your department. And how I think that can speed times to pain relief is that, you know, some studies suggest that earlier and better treatment of pain can lead to faster discharge and lower hospitalization rates, especially if you have that number and dose and medicine already plugged in. A, a clinician can run up, see the patient, say, yes, hey, we're executing our pain plan, and the nurse can, or whoever, can just go ahead and administer the medications without this clinician having to hem and haw over what do we give for this patient? We already know what we're giving. A lot of acute pain advocates are pushing recently that this oligoanesthesia, the undertreatment of pain, what it's going to do is lead to more severe and prolonged perception of the pain and can turn a patient who could have been discharged into a patient who doesn't feel comfortable going home. And we have an Annals of Emergency Medicine study from September 2020 in the show notes that are about that. It showed that there is a 48% decrease in time to first opioid. Now think about the last time you were in severe pain and if you could have cut the time in half to where you got some relief of your pain. That's huge. 
and a 22% decrease in length of stay in the ED after this protocol was implemented. Now, there was no significant change in this study on disposition or length of inpatient admission, but that's just the study. There are other studies in pediatric patients, let's say, that have shown improvements also in reduction in admission rate and reduction in uh, admission length. All right. So very, very good stuff, Mike, on opioids. Now, there are lots of other studies uh, that look at Look at pain treatment and giving the right dose of pain medication, even for people who have opioid addiction and treating their pain appropriately. So just another plug, if you didn't get a chance to listen to our awesome pain talk that we did with Sergey Motov, it is available on our YouTube site. So I'm just going to throw that out there if you haven't had a chance to listen to it. Let's talk a little bit about non-opioid pharmacological therapies for acute sickle cell disease pain. Now, a recommendation 2A panel suggests a short course, five to seven days of an NSAID, in addition to opioids for acute pain management. And recommendation 2B panel suggests against corticosteroid versus uh, acute pain cessation um, can lead to rebound pain. So kind of like opioids and headaches, maybe it'll work in the moment, but you're setting them up for failures in, in this uh, recommendation here. So, More non-opioid recommendations, the panel suggests your sub-anesthetic or low-dose ketamine infusions as an adjunct to pain that is refractory to opioids, which is a very common thing that we see in emergency medicine here. And they specified this was for hospitalized patients. So I'm really curious. I want to dig into that more later on and see why they said that for hospitalized patients. A lot of people are saying, let's give that ketamine in the ED. Let's not wait until they failed opioids to try this. Maybe we can do this for them and get them discharged. Next recommendation, the panel suggests regional anesthesia. So nerve blocks, epidurals for pain refractory to opioids. Yeah, so we're getting super creative here and we're using, we're pulling out all the stops as they would say, literally. But, you know, Mike, I also want to interject and bring this up that there's no significant recommendation for IV fluids across the board for all VOC patients. It used to be that everyone gets oxygen, IV fluids, and we're realizing more and more that oxygen is a drug just like any other drug. And if their SpO2 is somewhere in the mid-90s, then there is no likely an indication for them to get supplemental oxygen. Also, if there's a reason to suspect that a patient in a VOC is hypovolemic and needs fluids, fine. But it's not a standard of care for everyone. And they're cardiopulmonology function may already be a little bit brittle, so we're rightfully cautious about smashing, you know, uh, an old person who has a bad pump and pipes with a large bolus of fluid, so why shouldn't we do it here, right? Yeah, exactly. We should be careful about these patients as well. They may have also problems with their heart and lungs too, just like a person who's advanced age. Other non-pharmacologic therapies. Next recommendation, the panel suggests, it's going to sound kind of woo, but massage, yoga, TENS, virtual reality, and guided audiovisual relaxation techniques in addition to standard pharmacologic pain management. Now, this is really going to be um, widely accepted or not based on your department's resources and things like that, but I know that there are certain departments who are really looking forward and have, frankly, the funds and resources to incorporate these things, at least some of them, in uh, acute pain management. Some don't, and so that's where the multidisciplinary team comes in. There was no recommendation on acupuncture or biofeedback. 
And I have tried both of those things, by the way. I've tried acupuncture and biofeedback, which are both fascinating and occasionally useful interventions. But in this case, there's no specific evidence that is suggesting that it's going to be good for these patients. But who knows? When you've tried everything else, why don't you suggest it? Um, recommendation four panel um, suggests using uh, sickle cell disease-specific acute care facilities. Now, that means like an infusion center or an observation unit and also continuous opioid infusions. There's no recommendation on this over PCA or clinician-driven repeat dosing, okay? Um, The panel also suggests against chronic blood transfusion therapy versus recurrent acute pain or chronic pain. There are some situations in which you would want to perform blood transfusions, but not just for pain, okay? Okay. Right. Yeah, exactly. There are certain of these complications where blood transfusion is kind of the treatment, but not just because they are anemic there in your ER. Well, that wraps up our discussion of the American Society of Hematology 2020 guidelines on acute and chronic pain management of sickle cell disease patients. There is so much more out there when it comes to emergent complications of sickle cell disease and best practices. We're going to have more links on our website to view.fireside.fm to a great emdocs.net article on sickle cell disease, as well as the MRAP Corpendium page on sickle cell disease, so you can read more as desired. You know, I did promise some uh, COVID-19 spin on uh, sickle cell disease, and here it is. Many sickle cell disease patients who have COVID-19 can sometimes present as a pain crisis first without fever or pulmonary symptoms like we're used to seeing for our COVID-19 patients. And if you anchor on seeing a sickle cell patient as just their vaso-occlusive crisis, you might miss the fact that this is an early presentation of COVID and um, you should be testing them when they come in for their VOCs and warning them that, hey, if you develop fever or pulmonary symptoms in the next few days or anytime, you should immediately come back here so we can reassess you. We know also that they are hypercoagulability issues with COVID-19, and that can be really problematic in a sickle cell patient, considering what's going on with their pathophys. You want to to be aggressive with testing for COVID-19 in our sickle cell patients and keep the possibility of these hypercoagulability complications like PE in your head and aggressively educating on the patients as far as what to look out for, especially if they get a positive COVID-19 test. All right, so let's move on to talking about our procedure of the month, which is intramuscular shots. So I thought we would lighten things up a little bit by talking about COVID, right? But (laughs) although I want to talk about COVID, what I really want to talk about is giving the vaccine. And I want to talk about intramuscular shots. With the recent vaccination rollouts for COVID-19, more and more healthcare providers have been called upon to give immunizations. Traditionally, our nurses, you know, play a major role in giving medications and administering shots, but it's crucial that all healthcare members are properly trained to give intramuscular shots. You know, there's lots of physicians and nurses and NPs and PAs that stepped up to treat patients in the emergency room. They came from outside of the ER and picked it up in the ER and in the ICU and places like that. And now a lot of them are now pivoting to get involved in the COVID vaccination efforts to help stop the spread of the disease. This month, we're going to outline the proper technique showing you, in case you forgot or need some you know, updated tips on how to administer an intramuscular shot in light of this pandemic. And there are definitely different vaccines on the market and more every month. The actual technique is all the same. The vaccine has to be given intramuscularly 
And there are a few special considerations to take into account to make sure you're in the right place. Right. So let's start by outlining the process and the procedure. And all of this will be available with photos, videos, and descriptions on www.theproceduralist.org. And we'll put it in the liner notes as well. That's www.theproceduralist.org. So first, you're going to prepare your syringe with your selected uh, vaccination. Now, keep in mind that the Moderna is a two-shot plan, so you get one shot, and then you get another shot four weeks later. It comes in a 10-dose vial, but we've been getting like 11 or 12 doses out of some of them, which I find very interesting. And Pfizer is a two-shot plan as well. You get one shot and then another one three weeks later. And you need to reconstitute the Pfizer vaccine, but not the Moderna. The dose of the Moderna is 0.5 mLs and Pfizer is 0.3 mLs. But let's start with the bare basics before we start injecting anyone. Pop the top off the vial, right? If the vial is a multi-dose vial, take note about when the vial was first open and label it with the manufacturer's label. And they usually come in the same package. Then the rubber stopper has to be clean with an alcohol swab. Check out our video to account for the air issues in the vial and how to drop the medication. We, we walk you through that. And if you need to reconstitute the medication, you will need to release the pressure from the extra air that is added into the vial. And this is super important so the medication doesn't squirt all out in your eyes or is wasted, right? So as we mentioned, these are multi-dose vials. For each multi-dose, insert air equal to the dose you want to draw up into the vial. And then Clean the rubber stopper every time uh, because we don't want to contaminate anything in there. And be careful not to touch anything else around there, right? And and there's uh, some debate about whether you should be wearing gloves or not and if you should wash your hands in, in a sink between each shot. Um, you know, I think the best practice is to wash your hands if you have a sink, but they're also, and wear gloves. But uh, the technique I like to do is a new set of gloves and hand sanitizer in between each patient. So you... You can look at these videos. Video two shows you some highlights on our website here of how to do all of this properly. So right, you, you, you greet your patient, you wash your hands, you do that for 20 seconds, or you use the alcohol uh, sanitizer. And then you're going to locate the site um, by locating the acromion process, just measuring two to three fingers below it over the deltoid muscle of the arm. And then you clean the site with an alcohol prep, Give it a few seconds to dry, and it's best that you sit next to your patient who is also sitting when you give the shot in the arm. Have their patient sort of shake their arm out and, and engage that muscle and then relax it so that when you go to give the shot, they're nice and relaxed and the muscle isn't tense. And then instead of squeezing the skin really hard to do the Z-Track method, you can spread or stretch out the skin taut with your fingers before the injection. And again, our video shows you this. You're going to insert the needle at a 90 degree angle. Should be quick, but not like throwing a dart because that scares the patient and can cause them to vagal or syncopize, right? And then you're slowly injecting the medication. And here's the key here. Each 0.1 mLs of fluid should be one second of administration. So if I'm giving 0.5 mLs of a shot, that's going to be five seconds. One, two, three, four, Five, take out the needle, withdraw it, and dispose of it appropriately, and obviously don't put caps back on needles. So now that uh, you've heard the procedure, right? I mean, it seems pretty basic, right? This is like intermuscular shot 101. We're not trying to 
to dumb it down too much here, but there is a right way to do this. And I figured there were also some questions that people might have. So Mike, you want to fire some of those off? Yeah. So you mentioned the vaccine is going into the muscle, right? So it's the, which muscle are we talking about here? We're talking about the deltoid muscle of the arm. This is the best place to give the vaccine. Okay, excellent. And um, we're kind of locating it with what landmarks again? We're looking. We're using our fingers here, and we're pushing on where. So we're finding the acromion process, and it's uh, located at the top of the arm there. And then you're going to do two to three fingers down from that on the deltoid muscle, and you can make a triangle with your finger, or you can spread it out with your thumb and pointer finger as you go to give the injection. Okay, um, I've seen folks before you when they give shots to kind of like massage the medication in. Is that something that you recommend? Absolutely not. Let the medication stay where it is because you used a Z track method to insert the medication, and don't massage it because that's going to put it all in the subcutaneous tissues. Okay. Okay. And then you talked about the Z track method again. Can you kind of elaborate on that a bit? Yeah. So this is a great method. It allows the skin sort of to close back over the injection site. And that keeps the medication deep in the muscle. And the best way to achieve that Z-Track method for vaccinations, like I said, is to stretch the skin, not pinch it. And I love the video because the nurse that gives you your vaccination does a really good job. Yeah, exactly. I was actually, I wanted to quiz her to make sure that she was going to do it right because I've heard these kind of horror stories. So another reason why I'm glad we're doing this this episode here in this, this segment here. Um, how about a Band-Aid? I got a, a pretty plain Band-Aid for my shot. Yeah, you don't need a Band-Aid. Okay, like... You just don't. The Z-Track method is used. It's going to very, it's not going to bleed, all right? And even patients on blood thinners or aspirin, they're not going to bleed either. And once in a while, you'll get a bleeder. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of folks talk about the discomfort locally with the shot. Can we do a heating pad? Will that either help the vaccine get taken up or, or with comfort? Sure. I think a heating pad's okay. It's no big deal, but it shouldn't be scorching hot and it shouldn't involve massage. Okay. I, I saw some questions online about people talking about where they got their first shot versus their second shot. Like, will that result in weird or different side effects here? No. No, no, no. You can... <laughs> okay. No. No side effects. And you can pick... If you got your shot in your right arm, the first one, you can get your second shot in the right arm if you want. It doesn't matter. Just whatever they want. What if a patient doesn't have any arms, right? Well, the answer to this is that you can use the vastus lateralis muscle of the thigh... Let's hope these patients are few and far between, but they can get shots too. You know, there's lots of different kinds of needles you can use here. What needle size and, uh, you know, gauge are you recommending? So for men and women who weigh less than 130 pounds or 60 kilograms, a 22 to 25 gauge 5 eighths inch needle is sufficient. And that's great. You can use that for the deltoid muscle. And for men and women who weigh 130 to 152 pounds, um, or bigger, you could use a one-inch needle. That should be sufficient. Okay. You know, you know, you talked about how this vial is a multi-dose vial. And so um, some people might recommend, well, okay, instead of every time you have a patient to drop a dose, couldn't we just drop a bunch of doses ahead of time? And that way you have, you know, 20 syringes all laid out, and you just kind of go just darting patients as you go down the line instead of having to draw every single time. Right. So this is a very interesting question because I deal with this on a daily basis when I'm at clinic administering shots. There are two issues here. Um, drawing up the vaccine in advance is debatable and, and many like many of them do have the multi-dose vials, uh, but they also have a shelf life outside of the fridge. 
So you need to be familiar with each of these recommendations. And typically a vaccine is good for about one hour in the syringe after drawing it up. If you're running a clinic, you could probably draw up three to five shots at a time and have them ready to go. But this is the other problem, the second problem you might run into. A patient might say, how do I know that that is the... Uh, vaccine that you're giving me. I've had so many patients say that to me, and I say that's okay. I'll just drop. Oh I'll just drop another shot for you, and and they watch me pull up another shot from the bottle, and they're like, okay, I feel better now. So you know, got to do what you got to do. All right, that's it for intramuscular tidbits. We urge you to either volunteer or even get a paid gig for a vaccine clinic if you need a breather and take a day where you can make people cry with joy instead of cry with pain. So let's move on to our next topic. Okay. Well, I am passionate about a lot of things in medicine and education, but one thing that maybe sounds kind of nerdy is that I'm passionate about good charting. And maybe I think it's because I'm passionate about communication between people of all kinds. I want to give a quick shout out. Dr. Greg Henry, one of our esteemed long-running faculty at the CME, gives one of the best talks about charting and medical legal advice at our boot camp courses. I cannot recommend attending enough to hang out with us, to meet Greg and listen to his talk because he gives so many amazing tips from decades of practice, not just clinical practice, but also medical legal chart review and and, and expert testimony here. Um, It's a wealth of knowledge here. And I'll try to avoid not duplicating stuff he's going to (laughs) say. Yeah, he's he's one of our favorites. And he definitely has some great stories, not only about the charting and medical legal stuff, but just interacting with patients and, and what he's learned over the years. So, you know, I, I would he's definitely going to be there at our course in July. He has told me that he's going to come. So All right. I'm hoping that everybody will also join us. So, yeah, we learn about charting in school, but usually before we have a we've started to see patients right we're we're learning about charting as clinicians and then we start to appreciate where charting can either save or fail you or a patient we're so worried about learning pathophysiology and pharmacology that charting can be a distant thought at times right well that's in school and then you know you fast forward to clinic or the ED and you know think about the time you got a complex patient who maybe had been there three or four times that month or week and you read an old chart and all of a sudden, everything makes sense. Your ability to care for that patient that day was enhanced by that old chart written days, or maybe even it was written weeks or months ago, especially if it sounds like something weird happened during that encounter, and the other clinician explained why this weird thing happened. That's what I'm talking about when we're talking about good charting. It's not always long charting. I mean, ideally, it's not, because we've got other stuff to do. We've got patients to see. So some of the best communication, as we know from sitting in meetings or reading emails, is brief, but it packs a punch. And so when I talk about good charting, it's charting to help your patient, help your fellow clinicians, and maybe it's charting to help yourself down the road as well. Right. And there's a lot of reasons why we chart communication, like Mike mentioned. And, you know, like you kind of hinted to, protecting yourself med, uh, med legally. I mean, there's also quality improvement, research, utilization, risk management efforts that can all be helped with appropriate charting. And yes, billing, of course. But we're going to talk superficially about billing today. If you're concerned about how appropriately your charts are going to be billed, consider talking to your coding or billing people because, you know, you buy them a nice lunch and you ask them to do a couple audits for you and they're your best friend. So, you know, there there aren't any best practices you're missing out on or things that you think you're helping that, you know, sometimes you really aren't helping. So uh, make friends with these people. Find out what they want. You know, try to give them what they want so that both your jobs are easier. 
Yeah, sometimes my coding and building folks have really shined a light on things I could maybe skip or things I should be putting in that I'm not. Well, Martha, let's start with the history up front here. How deep do we need to go? How deep do you usually go with documenting history? There's a lot of acronyms to help you organize your thoughts and, and documentation. There are There's one uh, particular acronym, and what was that one, Mike, that you had mentioned earlier? Well, I like OPQRST. Okay. So do you use that one at all? I, I don't use that one that often. I like the old okay. carts um, sometimes to get that history. But I just, I think like if you're going to ask things like OPQRST, like you said, uh, the onset, where, what were you doing when it happened? Did this come on suddenly or gradually and getting sort of just that idea of when this started? Because that can make a big difference with your diagnosis. And then um, the... Uh, provo- uh, what does the P stand for? Remind me. <laughs> yeah, it's provocation and palliation. That's Those right. Are good words there, right? Thanks, thanks for the help on that. Right. So, what makes it better <laughs> or worse? <laughs> and also, quality. Describe the pain. Um, you're describing basically what it feels like, you know. And then, of course, radiation. Does it shoot anywhere? And then the S, severity. How bad is your pain? And then the T, timing. When your pain comes, how long does it go for? Are you in pain right now? Have you been in pain since birth? You know, like, you know, all these questions about the timing. So if you address four of those points, you meet the criteria for detailed or comprehensive billing for the history of present illness. So hit on four of those. Yeah, you don't have to hit on all of them. I think four is plenty adequate to tell a story, which is what we're trying to do anyways, right? Let me zoom in on a few of those things. Severity. I hate the zero to 10 pain scale. I haven't asked someone what number their pain is in years. You know, I might as well ask someone, if your pain was a tree, what kind of tree would it be? Like, it's very subjective, (laughs) one to 10. And ultimately, it's not actionable. You know, especially if this is a chronic pain or a recurring pain. I think a really important question is, when was the last time you had pain this bad? You know, that helps a lot with our migraineurs and people in chronic pain that maybe it's something else and not just a recurrent pain. I also don't ask, is this the worst pain you've ever felt before? It's just very subjective and not helpful to what you do that day. Timing is also important to me. You know, pain that's been there for two weeks, I'm trying to get a feel for why they're there that day. Is it getting better? Is it worse? Is it just not going away? Um, And then I'd like to throw in some free text after you've kind of plugged in all these holes in your medical record. You know, sometimes patients will really draw things out or you have to ask a lot of questions. There is this old saying, if the test result won't change your management of a patient, don't run the test. And the parallel thought here is this, if the presence of something in your chart won't change how you should diagnose the patient or how you'd manage them, Just don't spend time documenting. I don't need to know whether the patient's phlegm three days ago was green or yellow or yellow-green. A productive cough is just as descriptive as that. What about pink or sparkly? If it's pink or sparkly? Well, you know, if they are vomiting uh, tinsel or spangles (laughs) or or things like that, then yes, that's very important to document. And you you joke there, and I think that's actually a good point that I'm going to briefly, uh, you know, sidebar on is that... If something completely unexpected happens or they say something really bizarre, I think it's great to quote them. Don't use profanity here, but if they say something that's very unusual and sheds light on things, go ahead and quote that very unusual thing. Yep. Um, I like to also answer the question in my HPI, why do they come into the ER today? 
I don't ask this directly. I've tried to do that. I think it kind of comes off as me implying they shouldn't have come in, but I'll ask things like, are you concerned because your symptoms are getting worse in some way or because they're just not getting better? Or is there any particular part of the problem that they're most worried about? Because you'll have people come in with what sounds to you like very benign stuff or stuff that's been going on for a while. I need to know why they're there that day. And that sometimes can can crack the case. Yeah. And don't be a jerk about it. You know how I feel about that. Don't be a jerk. Okay. So you, you making a comment about why they're there is not going to stop any patient from coming in. It's just going to make you look bad. And also your uh, place of work look bad. So do your job. Be nice. Okay. Um, A lot of medical records have sections, and sometimes right after the HPI, that'll cover clinical guidelines, stuff like the heart score, well score, per criteria. I mean, do you always fill those out if they apply? I mean, you know. So patients there for like a sprained ankle, are you doing a hard score? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I want to even talk about, let's talk about right now, like let's say they have chest pain. Well, should I do a heart score, a well score, and a per criteria for every single person with chest pain? I think no, number one. I think that when it helps support what you chose to do for a patient, like I'm going to discharge them, the heart score supports that, then yeah, you fill it out. You're trying to tell that story, right? But if the guideline doesn't support what you did, I don't like filling it out, frankly. I mean, that situation, you're kind of showing someone reading afterwards that there is this guideline that told you or suggested you do something, and you didn't do it. We emphasize a lot in this podcast that guidelines are just guidelines, and they're not rules. That nuanced understanding of what guidelines are and are not is not really understood by everybody out there reading your chart. Yeah. After this... um review of systems you're going to go body system by body system checking off pertinent positives and negatives and this can blend in with your hpi a bit because you're probably already have talked about some of these a little bit we're all trying to save time when we chart and this is a great place where i think you can save some time resist the urge to double chart something if you already charted a pertinent positive or negative in your hpi you don't have to chart it again in your review of systems they can read up a paragraph, right? You know, likewise, if you know that in your workflow, the way you like the chart, that if you're going to talk positives and negatives in your ROS, you don't have to go into that great detail in your HPI about them. Also, be real careful about checking all negative for certain organ systems, especially in our, let's say, PD patients or nonverbal or altered patients. You know, it's, it's always funny for me to see, let's say, a six-month-old check in for a headache. Like, is this kid way advanced for his age that he can already verbalize he's got a headache or palpitations? You know, stuff like this where it would have to be something that the patient verbally expresses. I'm very careful when I check those and make sure that am I really getting that from the patient or am I just kind of blindly going along here? Right. So far, we've talked about subjective stuff, things the patient feels and is telling us. But now we're going to shift gears and talk about the objective part of the chart, vital signs, physical exam, the stuff that we are observing um, about the patient and, you know, we call them vital signs for a reason. We know you're looking at them um, on every patient, but it didn't happen unless you charted it. So note in your chart that you reviewed the vital signs. Please do that. It sounds kind of silly, but I think it's very important. And especially if they're abnormal or if they're technically normal, but just not what you'd expect for a patient with that presentation, I comment on the vital signs and why I think they're the way they are. Maybe I think it's because (laughs) the patient is in pain or having anxiety. Maybe they're off certain medications. I think it shows that you recognize something was weird there, and you're making an effort to address the cause, or 
that it's totally okay this person's vital signs are unusual. Like, they have influenza, so of course they're going to have a fever and a little bit of tachycardia here that goes along with their fever here. And here's why I'm discharging this patient with fever or with tachycardia. It's okay to discharge patients with abnormal vital signs. Just make sure you talk about why. Yeah. And I've read physical exam sections of charts before where it looked like there wasn't a single multi-syllable English word in the whole thing, like <laughs> W-D-W-N-A-A-F-N-N-A-D, heart rate RRR, with no MRG, lungs CTAB, with no RRW, that sort of thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> LOL. I, I just... Right. OMG. You know, I, I, my eyes kind of cross when I read those charts, you know, because it looks like my kid texting to me, you know, and it's not because I don't understand the acronyms, but I just I worry that someone has just copy and pasted a template. I mean, we've all read, you know, radiology reports where like clearly a, a template was copied and pasted and it wasn't really what was going on with this patient. And number two, it doesn't tell a story. You know, I, I like to free text in certain places, like in the constitutional section, I, I describe the patient and I do have certain boilerplates, but it's things like sitting upright in the bed unsupported without a painful expression, or they're rushing into an emesis bag looking anxious, or the kid is exploring the room or playing on a mobile device here. I think it's a powerful way to set the scene for someone, especially if the chief complaint is severe back pain or uncontrollable headache, and you write that the person is just sitting up looking at you, kind of blinking and smiling, I think it shows that there's a little bit difference between of what's being said by the patient and what is objectively observed by you. And I also avoid using the N-word, normal. What's normal about someone's ear or abdomen or arm? Describe the things you see or feel or the things you don't see or feel. Normal doesn't tell the story. You know, Greg Henry jokes that WNL, right, doesn't stand for within normal limits. It stands for we never looked. <laughs> you know, just saying normal leaves the door open for a discussion later on about whether you did or didn't observe a particular finding and should you have seen that and comment on it. Don't say normal. Oh, Greg, I just love him. Often the last part before the diagnosis section is the medical decision-making section. And I see this used a lot of you know, different ways by different people. But I feel like I'm starting over when I read some of these MDM sections. They're repeating age, gender, chief complaint, like blah, 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 blah. Like, yeah, I totally agree. You know, it's, I think it can be poorly used by some folks when it can be one of the most impactful parts of your chart. It's where we actually like show off how we're practicing medicine, right? We're applying our training and our experience here. And I would, again, just resist the urge to double chart. Your MDM is not alone on an island somewhere. It's attached to the rest of the chart. The person reading it can see this person had a certain age and gender. So if you already said it, don't say it again unless you're doing something unorthodox. I think that's what, that's where I kind of like highlight, hey, I'm not doing XYZ because of this. Um, it can be really straightforward for a straightforward issue, but for a more complicated patient, it really should capture how you had to think about potentially multiple bad things going on, how there was some diagnostic uncertainty at certain points, how there are certain things you had to do based on how a patient responded. I, I think the MDM should almost be like your one of your biggest sections here. And uh, thinking about it more, I think we're just going to table the discussion about MDM, the plan, the discharge instructions for another day. Uh, we could go on more, but I don't want to right now. There's lots of places, though, where if I've got your interest peaked a bit, where you can read and listen to this in the meantime. Like we said, we have great talks about charting during our original emergency medicine boot camp coming up in July live 
in Vegas, guys. So come on out and join us in Vegas here. Uh, Greg Henry and Rick Bucata have a great monthly podcast series through our Center for Mental Education called Risk Management Monthly. I'm a subscriber, and they pull their combined decades of chart reviews and consulting into awesome talks every month, often with special guests, about minimizing your legal risk, doing the right thing for patients, using charting to support those things, and not just you know practicing defensively like a robot here. Um, Mike Weinstock wrote a great series of books called the Bounce Back Series. He's a recent guest on Risk Management Monthly. I think it's the November 2020 episode here. You can find this awesome podcast and all these great guests talking about things like the MDM, like I think Mike talked about in November at www dot ccme.org that's www.ccme.org the center for medical education yeah special shout out to our friend weinstock this month so okay mike let's finish out this particular episode with a segment uh i find one of my favorite topics and that is first time seizures now you're gonna have to I might get too excited about this topic, all right? So keep me in check. But if any of you have listened to me in the in the past or seen me at courses, you know that compassion and care is so, so important to me. It is the reason why I went into this job in the first place. You cannot lose that caring bone, people, okay? Remember, this is a very sensitive topic for patients and families, a first-time seizure. No matter who is having the seizure, okay, the family gets upset, the patient gets upset, Everyone is concerned. Whether it's a pediatric patient with a worried parent or guardian or a middle-aged patient with a new diagnosis of a brain tumor or an elderly patient who may have just had a completely catastrophic event, I cannot stress enough to have compassion and ultimate and utmost care when you see these patients. So, you know, for that parent and that kid, that new diagnosis, it's a, you're going to have an overwhelming impact and you're the person treating them. So treat them with kindness. Yeah, for you, it could just be another shift, but this might be the most important medical visit of their lifetime. So I totally agree. Let's look at a few things. When we look at the epidemiology of seizures, there is a huge chance you'll see a seizure on your next shift or shortly afterwards. There is an 8 to 10% lifetime risk of one seizure in anybody and a 3% chance of epilepsy throughout the population here. About 50% of patients with an apparent, quote, first seizure, have had other minor seizures they didn't recognize as seizures. So the patient can be diagnosed as having epilepsy depending on what kind of history you've taken there. Seizures can be triggered by certain stimuli like, you know, flashing lights, reading, stress, sleep deprivation here. Uh, in, in, you know, these individuals who have an underlying disorder, these things can trigger the seizures here. And about a quarter of first-time seizures have an underlying cause of some sort. Let's talk about those causes. Yeah, so risk factors and causes, yes. With that being said, seizures can mean or suggest many diagnoses. But your job in the ER is to hone in on possibly the acute causes, immediate treatment, stabilization, and then a discharge plan or admission. Now, this is super fresh in my mind because actually my poor little three-year-old Labradoodle just had his first seizure yesterday. It was really weird. It was totally bizarre, Mike. Um, I'm not sure what happened to him in the dog world, but the concept of seizures in general is the same for most living things. And side note, the vet is helping us and we have yet to find a cause. Lord knows I'm not letting him drive, okay? But... 
back to what a seizure is. A seizure, of course, is this burst or explosion of sorts of uncontrolled electrical activity between the brain cell, neurons, nerve cells that cause a temporary uh, abnormality of some sort in the muscle tone or the movement. That's stiffness, twitching, convulsing, confusion, ataxia, or even limpness. So they could also change their behavior, sensations, state of awareness. Uh, They could just stare. Remember, not all seizures are alike. There's several different types of seizures from grand mal, uh, convulsing seizures to absence seizures. And the, the cause can be anything from acute intoxication or ingestion, medication, trauma, head bleed, fever, to brain tumor or underlying epilepsy. But, but don't panic. We got you. Right. We have links on our show notes from different places. The American Association of Neurological Surgeons, the American Academy of Neurology, the Merck Manual, the Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins. They all have little patients' educational pages that explain seizures. And so, you know, if your department does not have, if you kind of read over your discharge instructions, but By the way, I highly recommend you have to know it's not just enough to hit a button and print out discharge instructions. Please read them. Sometimes they get a little out of date, frankly, you know. So if you don't like the one in your EMR that explains seizures, we have a bunch that you can print out from our website, twoview.fireside.fm, that explains seizures to patients better. Um, It's great that you have a discharge plan for them because they're going to want to know, what do they do next? Do I have to eat or drink anything differently? When do I see a primary care doctor? Should I see a neurologist? We're going to discuss all those things at the end of this segment. Speaking broadly, there are two major classes or groups of seizures. We've got your focal onset and your generalized onset. Your focal seizures start in one area of the brain and then kind of spread out across the brain. And they cause, you know, depending on how the discharges spread, can be mild or quite severe. Your generalized seizures are kind of the ones we think more about, I think, when we think about seizures. They start as focal seizures and they spread across both sides of the brain. They can also occur as generalized onset where the seizure activity starts simultaneously over both sides of the brain. These usually start during childhood and are almost like, you know, your thermostat surging or a light kind of flashing. There's some sort of abnormal regulation between the two parts of the brain and that regulation causes the electrical spreading and the seizure. Great description of that. So let's start off with a quick case. This is a 42-year-old male, otherwise healthy, no significant health issues, presents to the ER in a post-ictal state after a witness fall to the ground and he was convulsing per his husband. The husband said he was fine and then he acted confused and fell to the ground shaking and that lasted about one minute. He didn't lose control over his bowel or his bladder. He didn't vomit and this had never happened before. He didn't bite his tongue. He also never had a febrile seizure as a child to his knowledge or any other seizure. So, He had no drug alcohol use that AM. Um, He wasn't in withdrawal, so he said he quit smoking 10 years ago, and he didn't fall or have any head trauma, hasn't started any new medications, but he has a slight headache now and he feels tired. Otherwise, he feels good. I think all those things you mentioned in the history there are really important things to ask about. Uh, You know, I'll be honest, I I get kind of oogie when I meet people who may have had a seizure for the first time. So what is their work up here we should be doing? Okay, so remember there are no hard and fast rules here. There are lots of guidelines. But this is a generalized suggestion for the workup and plan for this first time. Um, there are 
seizure patient that you're seeing. And keep in mind, this is clearly after you do your ABCDs of all the evaluation, because if the patient is back to baseline now, which is often the case when you see patients in first time um, seizures, you don't need to do a bunch of interventions. Now, again, citing from our favorite online textbook at the moment, MRAP's Corpendium on seizures, we want to highlight a few things that they suggest. You're going to get a blood glucose level in all seizing or postictal patients. This is so crucial. Get a blood glucose level. And also keep in your back pocket, literally, if for some reason they have a seizure again, you could administer benzodiazepines for any seizure um, that's lasting a long amount of time, greater than five minutes. You could give uh, diazepine, five milligrams IV, or lorazepam, two milligrams IV or IM, or midazolam, 10 milligrams IV, IM, or intranasal, which is my absolute favorite because it's so versatile and I love it. Okay, obtain a head CT, right? You got to do this, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second, Um, but we're also going to get lab tests, which we're going to tell you about as well, and then we're going to maybe consider an EEG or MRI, Um, so, you know, this is going to have to do with our consultation with uh, neurology. I'm pretty close hold on my point of care blood glucoses because, you know, in someone who has like you know, diabetes and their sugar was high at home, but they're mentating very well and they're not vomiting or looking uncomfortable here, you don't have to finger stick them. You can just get a regular blood glucose, uh, you know, with the rest of your labs here. So, but this is one of the times where, yes, I pull out the point of care blood glucose on our seizures and our stroke light patients, our altered patients here. So yes, for sure. Um, But you mentioned CTs. You're saying getting a CT scan in a first time seizures. You're saying this is a yes. Yes, it's a yes. Head CT and first-time seizures is a yes. There is a general consensus that adults with an unprovoked first seizure should have brain imaging with either CT, MRI, um, primarily to identify any process that may be responsible for the seizure. And there is supportive literature for this testing. We do this to rule out immediate bad things like bleeds, lesions, tumors, but the real tests they need in the future will be an EEG and MRI. And remember, I'm just talking about adult patients here. We're not talking about febrile infant seizures, okay? Oh, that's a great distinction, yeah, because we are so close hold on our, our CT of the head in our PD patients. Okay, yeah. well, a CT of the head, great screening test first. Uh, you know, not all of these patients get admitted for the EEG, for the MRI. And we'll talk about, you know, when you would do this towards the end of this talk, but a lot do. And OBS stays in an observational unit or an inpatient unit are pretty common uh, in addition to consultation with a neurologist. And if you don't have a neurologist on call, then they need to go somewhere with a neurologist on call. Depending on the diagnosis and your workup and whatever weird exam findings you may find here, you're going to have a lot of options with regards to your dispo. Uh, You could watch a patient after a short or prolonged postictal phase, that's important to do here. The question is kind of when, how long? A lot of guidelines suggest six to eight hours for first-time seizures, but these are, again, guidelines and not really a hard and fast rule. Before you start a medication, an anti-epileptic medication, or any sort of other outpatient medications, please talk to the neurologist. I've seen this multiple times where, you know, we're often sending folks out with their first-time seizure, no medications, okay? Um, you should do serial neurological exams in the department because you want to make sure something is not developing over time here. Document the exams. Document, you, you know I'm big on documenting here, right? Not just the exam, but the time. When did you do the exam? 
Really spend some time in the room with a patient as you're talking to them. Watch them as they just do stuff during the exam. Keep an eye on them and see kind of subtle things they are doing or not doing. And get whatever history you can additionally from, let's say, a a spouse like you mentioned or a parent or someone else that was there during the seizure. Because if it's a real seizure, the patient really can't give a whole lot of history. If a patient is being discharged from your department after you've either you know made a plan or done some observation here, lots of teaching is really important. You know, one of the big things is not driving, and that's really catastrophic for a lot of patients. You know, as far as their their work and life plan. I mean, thankfully nowadays we have different shared ride services, so there are ways to overcome that and maybe helping the patient understand that. In the event that they do see neurology, which they should, right? But sometimes it doesn't happen for whatever reason. Make sure if they're going to see neurology, how soon they should see neurology, who they're going to see, especially if you consulted with a particular neurologist here, and you know when more testing should be done. You, as the EP, as the NP, as the PA, you might think this is just another shift, but you're playing a really key role in the rest of this patient's life with their first time seizure here, in addition to the safety of uh, the people around them, their family, their loved ones here. So here is the additional suggested workup to rule out some potential causes when nothing's found on CT. Like ideally you don't find anything on CT, right? So what's next, Martha? Right, so you're gonna get some labs, CBC, CMP, ETOH and drug panels. And you wanna obtain an uh, EKG as well to exclude any arrhythmic cause that may have caused syncope. You know, sometimes people syncopize and they shake a little bit and they think that they maybe have had a seizure. You know, people don't, people don't know. If you're not there witnessing it yourself, you know, so maybe something else is going on. Um, and maybe it, maybe it was just like a, a, a syncope. But uh, careful history, uh, like we said, of head trauma, including um, witnesses, is super important uh, for that as well. So keep that in mind. All right. So additional stuff besides those labs, you want uh, you need to get a pregnancy test in anyone of childbearing age, right? Because then you need to, of course, consider preeclampsia, which is a whole different topic that we're not going to cover today, yeah. but it's on the differential. Other things you might want to consider doing is a Lyme panel, depending on where you live, <clears throat> or uh, if appropriate, other toxins. Consider CO2 poisoning in the event of that. Inquire about other home life and habits, you know, Um you'd be surprised if you just ask, like, are you eating or drinking anything abnormal? Well, yeah, I drank a bottle of antifreeze this morning. You know, you don't know what people are going to tell you, right? So discuss the use of also CBD oils, cannabis, because these have been linked to first-time seizures in a patient that admits to drug use, right? Also drugs like tramadol, theophylline, baclofen, and benzodiazepine withdrawal can cause seizures as well. Um, So look at the patient's med list. You got to do that. And consider any kind of post-concussion syndrome that may cause the seizure, that in-depth history that we already spoke about. And remember that alcohol withdrawal is a huge cause of seizures. And even if their alcohol level is negative, it's important to have this discussion with the patient and look for other signs of withdrawal if this is the case. And then finally, there's some other zebras, you know, like infection, um, you're going to look at their vital signs, maybe even rhabdomyolysis or lactic acidosis. Hmm. Well, I want to talk about real quick, Martha, you mentioned ideally their ABCDEs are good, but if you have to intubate a patient who is seizing and can maintain their airway here, we're suggesting to use things like propofol, midazolam, and or ketamine for induction. Uh, Avoid bite blocks, considering what happens with the mouth and tongue when you have a seizure here, Uh, and you can even repeat 
benzodiazepines if you have to before going to the next drug in your arsenal. Uh, if we can get these medications fast into the patient, that's going to increase the success of terminating the seizure here. So really try to get those medications in quickly for these kind of patients here. If you can't get a line, which happens sometimes, right? You can go IM or you can go IN, intranasal too, when you have to. So discharge, I, I, you know, this is always the, the thing for me, right? I don't have to get the diagnosis right, but I have to get the disposition right, you know, <laughs> whether they should stay or go. Um, MRAPS Corpendium has an awesome summary of this, and we've included that link in our liner notes here. So here are a couple of things, some, some tidbits from that. Patients with a first unprovoked seizure who are back to baseline, and there's nothing funny about their labs and rads here, they do not need hospitalization, and this is backed up by a lot of literature. Neuro follow-up should be arranged from the ED, if possible, for an outpatient MRI and EEG. So kind of tell patients this is part of the plan. You're going to need more tests. Don't just go home because you're fine now and never follow up again. Patients should be cautioned against, like we talked about, driving, but also bathing. And other activities during which, if they were to seize again, would be real dangerous. Ask about their work. What do they do for leisure? And, and let them know, hey, you probably want to hold off on that too. There are certain states and certain countries for our international listeners out there that mandate the reporting of seizures to somebody. So really make sure you know about that, especially if you go to a, you know, you're working some sort of relief work in a different state you're not used to going to. Ask about state regulations here. And we also have a link to all the state regs on the MRAP page, the Corpendium page through that link. All right. And then what about admission? You know, any patient that you think needs admission, honestly, like they're not right. They haven't gone back to baseline. There's some finding on their CT. Uh, they warrant an MRI or further investigation. There's a neurological deficit, a fever, an infection. Like I said, positive finding. Those people get admitted. Patients with a prolonged postictal state greater than an hour would be, you know, consistent with something that would make me want to admit a patient, of course, and look for more causes. And of course, if something cardiac is considered, you know it's dual consult time, right? Uh, so you got to love that. All right. So let's talk about just uh, end, end things here with neurology consultation. You know, there's urgent versus emergent for consultations. Um, but obviously, if you're going to be intubating a patient and they're still seizing, you better get that uh, that urgent, con- excuse me, emergent consult as quickly as possible. But, you know, for routine follow-up, this is usually about 10 to 14 days after you discharge them. That's when you want them to try and be seen for an appointment. And we've already talked about these really key things that you talk to the patient about and put in their dis- disposition paperwork. Finally, like what about an EEG, right? So patients might ask you about that. It's nice to be a little informed about what an EEG is, right? We're going to keep it short, but this is just some basic understanding of this test. If it's performed within 24 to 48 hours of a first seizure, an EEG shows substantial abnormalities in about 70% of cases, and the yield may be lower with longer delays after the seizure. If the standard EEG is negative, then you might want to consider a sleep-deprived EEG, and that will detect some other things that might be happening in about 13 to 31% of cases. Um, you know, so it's good to get this test pretty pretty quickly if you can. And sometimes you have to repeat the EEGs, and like I said, there, there's prolonged EEGs. I, I think it's a fascinating topic. Um And, you know, again, I started off by saying first-time seizures. Yeah, you know, I get really excited about this. And and I I think that it's really important and we play a really key role in helping these patients and, um, you know, finding out bad stuff and and also giving them some reassurance that their life's going to be okay. 
It is. You get excited. I get nervous, frankly. So like I said earlier, <laughs> so I'm glad we went over this again. It helps me kind of, um, you know, kind of solidify the things that I do and reassure me that like I am kind of doing the right things here. Hopefully people out there listening, you are also less nervous too with our first time seizure slash maybe seizure, maybe syncope patient. Let's head on home here with our trivia answer and our new trivia question. All right. So last month we asked the question of which members of our CCME faculty have won ASEP awards for excellence of some sort. And the answer was basically all of them. <laughs> so he couldn't have got this wrong. He could have said anybody, really. So, you know, we kind of uh, would have accepted answers of Rick Bucata, Diane Birnbauer, Jim Roberts, Greg Henry, Jerry Hoffman, Billy Mallon, Amal Matu, Al Sacchetti, Ken Milne, Mel Herbert. The list goes on and on and on. Also get excited about those people. So we just wanted to give a shout out to our favorite docs. I love them all. Love, love, love them all. And the winner goes out to Elizabeth Richard Jones, NP from Maryland. Great job, Liz. And she would like to give a shout out to Paige Filio, a newly minted PA from Berkshire County, all Massachusetts. Right. That's great. All right. Well, we have two upcoming scheduled boot camps this year so far. Our original slash basic courses are coming. July and November 2021. If you get this next question correct, you will win 20% off of any one of those courses or any other course you want. And that includes our live courses. Come to Vegas, throw some dice with us, have a couple of drinks with us, whatever kind of drink you like. Not judging. You live your life. You can buy it for yourself. You can give it to a friend. It's your 20% off. So here are our questions, a two-view question. And it's a two-view question, right? So there's two answers here. We know why it's called sickle cell disease. But who were the two people who discovered and are credited to the discovery of why the red blood cells sickle in the first place? What physically happens to cause them to sickle? So who are those two people? Give us your two answers at twoviewcast at gmail.com. That's our email address. To the number two, viewcast at gmail.com with your two answers to our two-view question. All right, so for more information or to give us your feedback, you can email us at that twoviewcast at gmail.com website. You can visit our faculty site and look at all our upcoming courses at www.ccme.org and consider coming to one of our courses. And then also check out our home study courses, the heart course, the farm course, the EKG course, all our different courses. We got a lot to offer. Right. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Two View. You can subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You got to search for Two View Emergency. That's the number Two View Emergency on your podcatcher, and it comes right up if you use the word emergency in there. Ratings help us to climb the charts so that other clinicians get some Two View goodness. Now, if you're more of a YouTuber and you want to see the video blog instead, search for Center for Medical Education, and you can catch the video version of this podcast. Don't forget our website, twoview.fireside.fm, where you can go next level on all the topics we talked about today, including all the papers, websites, and all that we referred to. That's twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett, and show notes are by Meg Dipple. Thank you again for tuning in, friends and EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us today on The Two View. Have a great day and a great shift. <laughs> <laughs>